Ernest Hemingway loved to write about the country of Spain. And in one of his short stories entitled The Capital of the World, he talks about a father and son who had such conflict with each other as the son was growing up that finally he just ran away in anger, went to the big city, disappeared. And after a long period of time, the father went to Madrid and faced locating his son among millions of people. He went to a local newspaper and he took out a large ad in that newspaper and it said this, Paco, meet me in front of the newspaper office at noon tomorrow. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. The next day at noon, there were 800 men named Paco in front of the newspaper office. The world is full of Pacos. All of us, in some sense, are hungry for forgiveness. And all of us need that with our Heavenly Father. And all of us not only are hungry for grace, like the Father in his story, all of us need to give grace. And that's what Jesus is getting at in this passage that we're gonna cover today. And I wanna just tell you quite honestly, this week was a reminder to me in my own relationships how important this topic is for us as a church right now. We are uniting as two congregations. It's been such a blessing and exciting to have our Crossroads folk who have so generously invited us into their space and have joined us, and and that's wonderful, and all that's great, but like any marriage, uh, eventually there'll be some rough stuff that we'll have to work through. We are experiencing God's move, not only in this church, but in the city in profound ways, and what I've learned is that whenever God's at work, Satan is at work. And I've also learned that Satan goes to church every single Sunday. He's more faithful than God's children are. He shows up every Sunday, and Satan wants to thwart the work of God in Worcester, and he wants to thwart the work of God at Belmont Street. He does. And so, if there was ever a subject that we need to return to again and again in our families and in our church body, it's the need to understand this concept that somehow forgiveness given equates to forgiveness received. Let's turn to Matthew chapter six once again. And we're gonna pick up right at verse nine through the Lord's Prayer into and through verse 15. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And now, depending on what translation you have, you may or may not have the remainder of the prayer. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And now verse 14. For if you forgive other people, When they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. 
But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. It's interesting that forgiveness in the prayer is not the last thing that he talks about. But it is the first thing he comments on. It's as though he knows that as soon as they talked about their forgiveness and their need to forgive others, some of their minds were caught right there because that's the first place he goes to. And he gives his own commentary. For if you forgive your brother their sins, then your heavenly Father will forgive you. And if you do not, then you will not be forgiven. And this brings up a great conundrum because once again, as we've worked through this sermon, we hear one of these statements that appears to contradict the whole notion of salvation by grace through faith alone. But by now, we should have gotten used to these kind of statements from Jesus, who said, if your righteousness does not exceed that of the Pharisees, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. And it's not just about murder, you're as culpable if you hate. And it's not just about adultery, it's about lust. And the biggest one of all, be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So. In this whole context, it should be no surprise to us that once again, Jesus throws out this extreme statement and what may have been on the minds of the disciples, well then who can be forgiven? Who can find the kingdom of heaven? You see, Jesus is constantly pointing to the need for a different kind of righteousness and were it not for the Beatitudes which show us the path to that, we might be lost by the impossibility of it. It is about grace, that's the whole point of it. Even our ability to forgive others is a supernatural thing. So I think I wanna summarize the big idea here this way. Listen, there are no unforgiving people in heaven. No matter how you come at this passage, Jesus is saying one thing very clearly, there are no unforgiving people in heaven. Because only forgiven people are in heaven. And forgiven people are forgiving people. Is that too many, too many twists and turns for you? Well, to help us with it, Jesus has a parable that he teaches in the 18th chapter of Matthew. And we're gonna learn several very important things. We're gonna learn about the nature of God. We're gonna learn about the nature of repentance and the nature of forgiveness. We're gonna begin reading at verse 21. It's the famous parable of the unmerciful servant. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus said, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times, or maybe your translation says 70 times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. 
But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. And then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This parable is about the kingdom of heaven, just like the Sermon on the Mount. And we know that there is both a future aspect to that kingdom, but a present reality that is citizens of the kingdom, members of the church, the qualities of this life are to be reflected. And as we bring the gospel of the kingdom to the world around us, we influence, we are salt and light, as the sermon had taught us. And so once again, Jesus is referring to that kingdom of which you and I are a part. It begins by Peter offering what he thinks is a step up from the religion of his day. Lord, how often should I forgive someone? Seven times? You see, the Pharisees taught that you only had to forgive someone three times. After that, all bets were off. Peter says, how about seven? Seven's a God number. Now, for the Hebrew, seven meant completeness. And so it's actually possible that Peter was being pretty noble by saying, do I forgive completely? That, that there should be never an end to my forgiveness. It's possible that Peter actually was landing on some truth here. I mean, he did do that once in a while, didn't he? And then Jesus answers, not just seven times, but either 77 or 70 times seven. The idea is the same. If Peter's saying, should I forgive completely to infinity, Jesus is saying, not just to infinity, you should forgive infinity times infinity. And then based on that, he tells this story. Now, the first servant is forgiven a tremendous debt. 10,000 talents, or 10,000 bags of gold. One talent was about 20 years of day's labor. So in other words, this would be the equivalent for most of us of millions upon millions of dollars. This is a debt that it makes no sense that this man could ever have incurred. How did this guy even get that kind of a credit limit in the first place? <laughs> it's not even rooted in reality. We're supposed to understand that this debt is beyond all reason and there is no hope ever of him paying it back. And it's to remind us that that's exactly the debt we have with our Heavenly Father. We can't begin to conceive of how deep the sin of our lives has incurred a debt before God and we have no hope of ever paying it back. And then when he goes off to the other servant, and the servant owes him a hundred pieces of silver, or denarii, one denarii was a daily labor's wages. So this is roughly a third of a year of the average person's income. 
So compare that, and, and he has no mercy for this person, and what's the result? The result is that he loses whatever grace had been made available to him because of his inability to extend that grace, and what it reveals is that in his heart there was never real repentance. Let's first of all look at what this parable teaches us about the nature of God. And the first thing we see is that it is God's nature and desire to forgive. And scripture is replete with the description of our Heavenly Father being desirous and willing and quick to forgive and slow to anger. But one of the most beautiful descriptions of it is Exodus chapter 33. Keep your thumb in Matthew 18, but turn with me to Exodus 33. Actually, 34, but in Exodus 33, Moses, in this moment of experiencing God's grace once again towards Israel, he asked God to show him his glory. He says, Lord, show me your glory. There are beautiful songs written about that desire. God essentially says to Moses, you can't handle the truth. You can't handle my glory. So I'm gonna hide you over here and I'm gonna manifest myself in a physical form. I'm gonna walk, I'm I'm gonna let you just see my shoulder. Uh, You can handle my shoulder, but you can't handle my glory. We pick up the scene in verse four of chapter 34. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones, went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. He carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord, and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming. Now, Moses said, Lord, reveal to me what is most glorious about you. What we're about to read is God's song in honor of himself. This is God declaring his glory. Now for us to do that, proclaim our own glory would be to worship ourselves. Why is it not wrong for God then to proclaim his own glory? Because he's the only one worthy of it. When I proclaim my glory, I'm taking the place that God alone deserves in my life, which is the center of my life. For God to be anywhere else but at the center of his creation is for him not to be God. God seeks his glory. He proclaims his glory. And this is what he says. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Point one in God's hymn about what he is most glorious for is his unrelenting patience and mercy and willing to forgive. And now verse two, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And here in God's own hymn that declares the central point of theology, the study of God, are two sides of the coin that is God's holiness, his absolute goodness. At one hand, God is always ready and willing to forgive. 
And he states that first. But because he is so good and holy, he will also always deal and must out of his nature deal with sin. But he'd rather forgive. And what we see in this parable is that God. The first thing we see is that he's offering forgiveness. He's willing, but the ungrateful servant experiences the judgment of his own sin because that's what happens if we don't receive God's mercy. See, this is the point I think that we need to see here. God is the one that offers grace. He's not reluctant. If you're here today and you're wondering how you get to know a God that you think is angry, he's not. He's eager to forgive. God offers everyone grace. It's our inability to repent that cancels that invitation in our life. I think that's what he's getting at here. So the first thing is it's God's nature and desire to forgive. And the second thing we clearly see here is that he expects his true children to reflect that forgiving nature. What do we see in this parable about the nature of forgiveness? Now, many of us think forgiveness is wrapped up in this phrase, forgive and forget. Now, I want to tell you, it's not a biblical principle that I can actually forget harm done to me. I can't. God did too good of a job even with this brain. Right now, I'm sure that there are actual people and situations that have come to our mind. I've sure got a few. Well, there are people that I, I think if that's the standard, I'll, I'll never get there. I remember. I still struggle with the impact of people's actions on my family, on my loved ones, and even on me. If God's standard is that I turn the clock back and feel and act as though the hurt never happened, is that what God means by forgiveness? If that's true, then who can be saved? But that's not what forgiveness means here. The, the word is afe, and it simply means to release, to relinquish my desire, my right to see a person pay for the harm that they've done. What happened in the parable? What did the servant who had been forgiven do? Rather than releasing like the king had done for him, he actively and aggressively sought justice. And what God's children do is that they let go of that. They release that. Now that I I can do with God's help. It's an act of obedience, but my job is to reflect the forgiving nature of God by releasing people from their debt to me that has me secretly rooting for things to go bad for them, (laughs) praying for them to come back on their knees and apologize so that I can offer divine grace. It's releasing them and therefore releasing ourselves. That's what Jesus is saying is to mark a true child of God. I, I know that For some of you, that's a really hard thing to think about with the person that's in your mind right now. But I'm gonna tell you, if you are an authentic child of God, you will release those people. That's all right, hope that's somebody calling to apologize. (laughs) So you can offer grace. Just answer the phone, say, I forgive you. (laughs) You can do that. You can do that. In fact, you must do it. Listen to me, because there are no unforgiving people in heaven. 
What do we learn about repentance as a result of this? The, the term in Greek for repentance is metanoia, and it simply means a change of heart. Changing my heart so that I look at myself and sin the way God sees it, and then a receiving by faith of God's forgiveness. And I think it's in understanding what true repentance is that we really see the key to this whole sermon. Repentance is a complete change of heart, not just about my sin, but about sin. We have so individualized our notion of faith. We mistakenly think that I can just do business with God and it's just between him and me. So I only have to change my mind about my sin. But that's not repentance. Repentance is changing my heart about all sin. And remember that God's heart about sin is not just the acknowledgement that it's there, but the readiness and willingness to forgive. So repentance carries with it a willingness to understand that not only do I need forgiveness and I'm worthy of forgiveness, or I'm in need of it, everybody else is as well. At the foot of the cross, we're on level ground. And so repentance involves seeing our sin from God's perspective. And here's God's perspective of our sin according to Jesus. Millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. The debt we can't even begin to comprehend and could never pay back. Forgiveness involves then seeing the sin of others through our own sin. When I have seen my sin with the weight and significance of it that God sees, I turn to my brother or sister who has harmed me, and by comparison, it's mere denarii. It's nothing compared to the sin that God has forgiven me. How can I truly be a repentant spirit if I am not at the same time forgiving others? You see, I think that's the key here. And it boils down to this statement. An unforgiving person is an unrepentant person. And that's why there's no unforgiving people in heaven. I want to be clear here. I want to do it lovingly. But we're not just at risk because of our pattern of holding resentment against people. And some of you, I mean, you're masters at it. It's like your superpower holding grudges. You've got a whole list of people. I remember um, Vit grew up next to uh, Sally and Dave Waintel, and they were both uh, in Auschwitz. I remember seeing their tattoos. They're both dead now. Sally was a very bitter woman. You could argue if anybody had a right to be bitter, it was her. There were others who found God in concentration camps. Sally lost God. And I don't think anybody would ever tell her she should love Germans. But her bitterness worked its way into every other part of her life. If you went into her home, you'd see a beautiful portrait of her family. There was a face that was missing from that portrait. She had sent it to a photographer and had him take one of her children out of that portrait, disowned her completely over a simple misunderstanding. That's what happens with bitterness. You lose perspective. You see everything through that taintedness. You hear through the worst case scenario. 
and frankly, what we're at risk here, according to this teaching, is not just missing out on your relationships here on earth, not just missing out on the peace that comes from letting go of that bitterness. What we're really talking about is missing out on heaven. Because if you're truly repentant, then you see other people's wrong to you through the lens of your debt to God. And that's why we hear in Ephesians, and let's say this together. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Let me first say, brothers and sisters, let us hold unswervingly to this principle of grace and forgiveness as we forge together a work that God is going to do in this city. Let us not allow Satan to have a stronghold by causing a root of bitterness in our hearts. Can you, as part of this church community, say amen to that? And can you also now do some inventory and think about those people that you need to release from your bitterness, that your own brokenness has caused you to misunderstand and make worse? Can you see that? You see, the problem is that most issues that we think we're victims of, we're contributors to. It's very rare that we're just victims. And so if we can't forgive someone else, what that means is that we're not repentant because we're not willing to look at our own brokenness and how we contributed to the circumstance. Can we get humble? Can we offer forgiveness? Is there a phone call you need to make? Is there someone who's long gone that you just need to release and free yourself from that bitterness? What? What deep work of repentance does God want to do in your life? Is it possible that you understand true repentance for the very first time and you want to repent completely to God and find grace and find salvation as his child? If God has challenged you in any of these ways and you want to acknowledge that and be prayed for the change to come, would you just raise your hand so I can pray for you? Anybody? Thank you. Father, for those who've raised their hands, I pray for release in this very moment from the weight of anger and bitterness. I pray for grace, and I pray that because they are willing to extend grace, they would receive a full measure of your bountiful love and grace in their spirits right now. And Father, hold us to this. May we be peacemakers in this body and in this city. In Jesus' name, amen.